The Truth News Network. In the universe of mandates, whatever happened to my body, my choice, is that still a thing? Hmm. Well, that's one for the lawyers, I suppose. What exactly is the truth there? Well, this is TNN. The Truth News Network. And we ask questions like that under the direction of Dan Newman. What an appropriate question to ask this Monday morning, day after Mother's Day. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to TNN Live, our Monday chapter, as I said, day after Mother's Day, and we go into this thing, and I guess at the top of pretty much everybody's list of important things is about abortion, Roe v. Wade, what's going on at the U.S. Supreme Court. And my goodness, did it explode nationally last week, as a matter of fact, internationally. We're going to dig into that. We're going to get started today with, I got to be completely honest with you, I looked at the numbers just before we went live of people that have read today's cover story at truthnewsnet.org. It will be the most read story in Truth News Network history after the day is over. So what's the story about? Well, before we get to that story, let's go back to um, the weekend. Let's go back to Fox News. Let's go back to a a former federal prosecutor and also a former member of the United States House of Representatives, Trey Gowdy. He weighed in on his show on Fox News over the weekend, and I thought it was salient and applicable for us to just take a peek at it. So, he weighed in on five lawyers in black robes. Now, who's he referencing? You know those five conservatives on the United States Supreme Court that are under siege nationwide. Speaking on the abortion issue in the wake of last week's leak of that Supreme Court opinion draft, which indicates the landmark Roe v. Wade case could be overturned by the Supreme Court, Gowdy contended that voters should have the final say. Voters should have the final say. Did you get that? Voters should have the final say by taking issues to the public square and the ballot box and the floor of a legislative body. I thought that was really appropriate for somebody to finally step up and say, hey, look, we don't need justices to make a determination about whether we, the American people, want this or that. We, the American people, we have the power and the authority to do just that. So during his monologue on Sunday Night America last night, Gowdy addressed who gets to identify those rights not mentioned in the Constitution. And he said this, When it comes to the instant debate on abortion, I don't know if the leaked draft opinion will reflect the finished product. I doubt it, he said. But I don't know it. What I do know is the issue's not going away. If Roe v. Wade is overturned and the issue reversed to the state's Some states will ban all abortions, including in the case of rape, incest, and when the life of the mother is in danger. Some other states will expand access to abortion and allow it up to the moment of birth or maybe even beyond in the case of partial birth abortions. Now, this is Gowdy speaking. It may be fine for the 50 states to have different views on education or crime or the legalization of drugs, When life begins 
is not an issue subject to 50 different opinions, he said. He, of course, is citing the right to life enshrined in the U.S. Constitution and also, by the way, in the Declaration of Independence. Democracy is hard, he said. It was intended to be hard. It's a privilege earned with the lives and the limbs of others. It's easy to sit around and wait for five lawyers in black robes to look in the shadows of a penumbra and tell us what our rights are. That is judicial oligarchy. It's harder to go into the public square and the ballot box in the floor of a legislative body and debate it. And debate in the public square in these contentious times also seems elusive, as can be seen with some of the reports of protest over the weekend, including the targeting of a Wisconsin-based pro-life group that had its office set on fire. But that's what we should do. Do it for ourselves. Trey Gowdy said, not wait for unelected lawyers who live lives of virtual isolation to do it for us. Our rights do not belong in any shadow. Bring them into the light. So last week, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, he continued that if the U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, there could be a national ban on abortion. If the leaked opinion became the final opinion, legislative bodies, not only at the state level, but at the federal level, certainly could legislate in that area. McConnell said that in an interview with USA Today following the leak of the opinion on the Supreme Court case Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which was published by Politico. And if this were the final decision, that was the point that it should be resolved one way or another in the legislative process. So yes, it's possible, he added. Don't you think if you step back away from the noise of all this pro-abortion, pro-choice, pro-life stances that are being screamed from the mountaintops across the nation, I've heard more hilarious back and forth in the last five days than I've heard in the previous five years regarding our politics. And it's over this abortion situation. But don't you think it should be something left in the court of public opinion to be resolved in a ballot box, in a state legislature? The people's choices and the people's houses, and not just for purely political partisanship and political agendas. We need to have conversations like this. Now, don't get me wrong, I've got my opinion. Those of you who know me know what my opinion is. We need to have these conversations, not just about Roe v. Wade, not just about abortion, but about everything, every single thing that are important things in the lives of all of us. So yesterday afternoon, we had a great Mother's Day weekend. We're blessed, as those of you who follow this show know, my wife and I have three amazing children. We have six grandchildren that all live within, gosh, a mile or two of us. And we're blessed in that when we get together, we have everybody pretty much all the time unless somebody's out of town. And yesterday... 
My wife, her 96-year-old mother, she spent part of the day, Marianne spent part of the day with her mother after church yesterday morning, and then we all got together at uh, our youngest daughter's home, and all of our grandkids were there. We had a great time. But before we went to the get-together yesterday evening, I sat down at my computer, and I started writing a story. And it was going to be the story that was published this morning at truthnewsnet.org. And I sat there, and I sat there, and I thought, and I wrote a few lines, wrote a few paragraphs, and I just quit. And I just waited till I got back yesterday evening. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of irony about yesterday, which was Mother's Day 2022. And the title of this story popped out to me, and I'm just going to share it with you. Here's the way it starts. Ironic, isn't it? On Mother's Day 2022, half our nation glorified the sacrifices of mother's babies. Yep, yesterday was Mother's Day. That's a day that we all set aside every year, a time to glory all those who have perpetuated life on the planet, you know. And in doing that, make sure you and I know how to live, thrive, and follow their guidance in keeping the population of Earth in survival mode. (laughs) Boy, did we mess up. Forget about the glory for mom this year. Mother's Day 2022 was solely about erasing gender, blurring the traditional pronouns that dare base their existence on biological sex, to now requiring we all make a polite inquiry as to a being's pronoun preference. My God, who can traverse the speed bumps and roadblocks erected by the elites in our nation who somebody appointed to be the sole arbiters of all that is quote-unquote acceptable? And then real tragedy was unleashed on all of humanity when an outgoing justice of the Supreme Court dared to draft an opinion tied to the neck of Roe v. Wade that showed its ugly face through a law from Mississippi, and it set the world on fire, both figuratively and literally. Washington has been convulsed by that leak of the most obvious upcoming Supreme Court ruling in years. In response, unbalanced hysterics around the country and across the Atlantic are predicting a dystopian future, even to the end of modern society and human life. Here's an example. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who once affected a moderate image, charged that those choosing life are taking Neanderthal views, her words, taking Neanderthal views pushing America backward. One British activist from a country where parliamentarians rather than judges make laws shrieked, is this how one of the most powerful countries in the world starts compelling its women to procreate regardless of their circumstances, their means, their concerns or desires? Well, if that woman ever calms down, she insisted that she is not given to emotional outburst, suggesting that her permanent state must be somewhere between mania and delirium. Someone should assure her that the answer is no. 
In Dobbs v. Jackson's Women's Health Organization, that is the innocuous Mississippi case that made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The conservative majority apparently is ready to overturn the infamous abortion decision in Roe v. Wade. After a half century, almost, one of the worst high court rulings ever looks like it's about to be reversed. The final backhanded insult for legal lefties is the recognition that legal conservatives are celebrating what appears to be an imminent victory. There have been some doozies over the years. Dred Scott versus Sanford, Plessy versus Ferguson, Wickard versus Filburn, Minersville School District v. Gobitis, and Gokoramatsu v. United States. They all come to mind. Now, honestly, I had to look those up, knowing only three before I looked them up, those cases. Roe belongs in that awful list of American tragedies, no doubt. Indeed, its denial of humanity to the most vulnerable mirrors the infamous Dred Scott decision, which held Americans of African descent were not citizens. You remember that? Nevertheless, Erwin Chemerinsky, dean of Berkeley Law School, complained in Justice Alito's opinion, it is clear that five justices are about to overrule Roe because they disagree with it. Yet that is the point. The majority apparently believes that the opinion is wrongly decided, grievously in error, and producing terrible consequences. Kind of like that Dred Scott decision. You know, the one which held Americans of African descent were not citizens. However, Joe Biden inadvertently said something sensible, although most believe he probably said it by accident. After he insisted that the Supreme Court uphold Roe, he added this. I want to quote the president. If the court does overturn Roe, it will fall on our nation's elected officials at all levels of government to protect a woman's right to choose, and it will fall on voters to elect pro-choice officials this November. That was how the pro-abortion movement always should have proceeded. Take it to the people. Take it to the people. Take it directly to the people. Do you know all the details, the history about Roe v. Wade? Let me just give you a, a skinny summary. In 1973, Roe was very controversial, even among what was then called liberals. That was before they were ashamed of that designation and adopted the term for themselves progressive. They liked judicial legislators who used the slightest legal ambiguity as an excuse to enact their preferred policies. Still, many legal liberals believe that the Constitution at least remained relevant to constitutional law, and for them, Roe went two or three steps too far. One Constitutional law professor, Paul Brest, who became dean of Stanford Law School and later president of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, he stated that though he liked a rule on substance, he could not justify Roe's constitutional law. He obviously was a liberal. That was before the decision had become a sacred totem of the left, a super-duper precedent that could never be touched, disturbed. 
the essential foundation of a good and just and moral society, and the pinnacle of wokedom. He was not alone in his misgivings. John Hart Ely of Yale, Yale Law School, who later ended up as another Stanford Law School dean, wrote a highly influential article entitled The Wages of Crying Wolf. Ely related that were I a legislator, I would vote for a statute very much like the one the court ends up drafting. Nevertheless, his judgment was devastating. The decision he wrote lacks even colorable support in the constitutional text, history, or any other appropriate source of constitutional doctrine. Indeed, the problem was not so much bad reasoning as no reasoning at all. Ely argued, it is bad because it is bad constitutional law, or rather because it is not constitutional law and gives almost no sense of an obligation to try to be. Unsurprisingly, then, he viewed the decision as a dangerous precedent. The word abortion is not even mentioned in the Constitution. Justice Harry Blackmun's opinion made clear that it wasn't much about the Constitution. He appeared to see himself more like an Olympian philosopher than an American judge. For instance, he discussed how the Greeks, the Persians, and the Romans dealt with abortion. What U.S. law said appeared to be of much less interest, and he began his opinion. I'll just give you the first paragraph. We forthwith acknowledge our awareness of the sensitive and emotional nature of the abortion controversy, of the vigorous opposing views, even among physicians, and of the deep and seemingly absolute convictions that the subject inspires. One's philosophy, one's experiences, one's exposure to the raw edges of human existence, one's religious training, one's attitudes toward life and family and their values and the moral standards one establishes and seeks to observe are all likely to influence and to color one's thinking and conclusions about abortion. In addition, population growth, pollution, poverty, and racial overtones tend to complicate and not to simplify the problem. That was him. Justice Harry Blackman's. This is me. In response, uh, yeah. That's what I think about when I ask what the Constitution means. How do we assess the raw edges of human existence, huh? Can you believe, why don't they just write it like we can say it and speak it and understand it? So, Alito's draft, Dobbs' opinion, gently describes Roe as, quote, remarkably loose in its treatment of the constitutional text. The latter decision relied on earlier cases that pointed not so much to the Constitution, but rather to supposed penumbras, emanations, ejections, eruptions, ebullitions, explorations, explosions, oscillations, exhalations, effusion, discharges, emissions, and explanations for the document. And I had to look up all of those words, too, that I threw in there. They all began with E. It just sounded like, you know, alliteration. And you got to be judgy. 
you know, like a Supreme Court justice. Before Roe, who imagined that the founders thought about abortion, preparing future generations on how to deal with the procedure in each pregnancy trimester? Perhaps most striking about Blackman's opinion was his assumption that abortion concerned just one person. There was no serious consideration for the baby. This is the point where I have hung up since I was a teenager. I cannot get my brain around just forgetting the baby in this conversation. The majority effectively treated this independent person in development like a tumor, something that existed only to be removed and destroyed. And so do Rose defenders today. Critics of reversal also refuse to acknowledge the existence and value of another life. For instance, the president, Joe Biden, repeated the standard mantra that he planned to defend a woman's right to choose without detailing to choose what and to choose what against whom. If you're against something that somebody's doing, you got to have somebody to do it against, right? But the premise is, it's not living yet. It. The Washington Post, Ruth Marcus, complained. The majority intended to return the decision to continue a pregnancy to, quote, a majority free to impose its moral choices on the would-be mother. Chimarinsky wrote about women facing the cruel choice between an unsafe abortion or an unwanted child. Yet, doesn't the unwanted child have an important stake in the decision about life and death, his or her life and death? Shouldn't someone advocate on behalf of the most helpless and the least powerful participant in this process, the baby, to be killed? Ely noted this anomaly, writing, There is more than simple societal revulsion to support legislation restricting abortion. Abortion ends, or if it makes a difference, prevents the life of a human being other than the one making the choice. The draft Dobbs opinion emphasized this point, distinguishing abortion from matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. And Alito stated, quote, abortion is fundamentally different as both Roe and Casey acknowledge, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal life and what the law now before us describes as an unborn human being. I've said this before and I'll say it again. My wife is a consummate, put showers on, participate in showers for moms that are going to be. My wife has never received an invitation to a fetal, fetus shower. Hmm. Of course, this fact doesn't change the reality that pregnancy has a unique and burdensome impact on women. No one who values liberty should want the government to intervene in intimate personal decisions about having a kid. 
But once life has come into existence, the baby and his or her interests cannot, or at least should not, be casually just set aside. For the same reason the state sometimes reluctantly intervenes in a family life when children are abused, abortion is complicated. But that is an argument against arbitrary judicial lawmaking and for vigorous legislative lawmaking. You know, that constitutional thing. Ironically, the vigorous national debate short-circuited by Roe was liberalizing abortion laws. For instance, before Roe, California Governor Reagan signed legislation substantially relaxing abortion restrictions. That's a move that he later regretted, and he stated so publicly. Abortion politics was and is complicated, dividing both parties. Scores of House Democrats were pro-life while several Democrat presidential contenders, including Bill Clinton, Al Gore, Richard Gephardt, were moderates, at least until their presidential ambitions conquered their principles, there were cross-party political alliances that are absent today. In contrast, Roe created what the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg called prolonged divisiveness. The decision played a critical role in igniting the culture war. By grabbing control of the judiciary's commanding heights, lefty lawyers disenfranchised the American people. Anybody who believed in anything, except abortion on demand, was and is effectively locked out of the policy process. If you are not a woman, you don't have a voice in this whole problem. Period. Cancel culture. The abortion lobby, which got almost everything it desired without having to compromise or even convince anybody but the seven Supreme Court justices and the Roe majority, they celebrated. However, the great unwashed were not willing to stand by and do as they were told. Roe's judicial advocates continued to believe that the fact they wore robes both entitled and enabled them to shut down all public debate. In 1992, Reagan appointee Anthony Kennedy mimicked the infamous switch to save Roe and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. A swing block of three justices lectured dissatisfied members of the public, insisting that their interpretation of the Constitution calls the contending sides of a national controversy to end their national division How? By accepting a common mandate rooted in the Constitution. Translation? Critics? Shut up and sit down. Casey was about as successful as Dred Scott. That one banned federal interference with slavery in the new territories. Historian David Potter explained that some of the justices felt that the sectional conflict had fed for a decade upon the uncertainty about the constitutional question and that it was their judicial responsibility to settle the whole thing. Instead, the decision undermined the court's reputation and intensified attacks on what was called the slave power and even made up a word, slaveocracy. 
The result was even stronger political resistance and ultimately the victory of the Republican Party in 1860. The essential problem about Dred Scott and Casey, of course, is that neither decision was rooted in the Constitution. Ironically, Roe's reversal would have only limited practical effect. And this is the part that just blows my mind as they're blowing up the world, they being the hard left pro-abortionists. It's not the end if it is reversed. It would have only limited practical effect. 13 states have laws today that would trigger abortion restrictions. Another dozen states might pass new legislation limiting abortion. But such measures likely would be more limited than predicted. So long as Roe, as modified by Casey, remained in force, state legislators could play to the most extreme followers with little, very little political consequence. After Roe, the stakes would be higher and the political calculus would be different. Moreover, the remaining half of the states would leave abortion widely legal. Drugs that initiate abortion, by the way, also are going to remain available if Roe is ruled unconstitutional. Anybody willing to endure some inconvenience likely could get an abortion. Still, indeed, pro-abortion groups already have created what journalist Jessica Bruder called a sprawling grassroots infrastructure of funding and support organizations serving people in areas currently with few or no operating abortion clinics. You don't hear about this. It's out there. They're out there. Yes, the outcome would be messy. However, legislators remain better able than judges to sort out the complicated interplay between commitments to life and liberty embodied by the abortion controversy. Striking to me is the ideological shift to the left. Then liberals affirmed the importance of the judiciary standing up for the Constitution, even though they meant the Constitution as imagined rather than as written, and Alito explained it this way, quote, The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision. Adding that, a right to an abortion is not deeply rooted in the nation's history and traditions. Instead, an unbroken tradition of prohibiting abortion on pain of criminal punishment persisted from the earliest days of the common law until 1973, Roe v. Wade. Go figure. Abortionists want Supreme Court justices to ignore the Constitution, at least when they're determining the legality and the constitutionality of abortion. This history didn't slow down the legal left. Rather, Roe was perhaps the prime example of lefty jurisprudence. Jurists act as a as members of a continuing constitutional convention, making new laws that they believe to be necessary for a good and liberal society without the slightest concern about what anyone else desired. Or, by the way, its legality. They were quite sincere, of course. But as Alito said, we must guard against the natural human tendency to confuse what the amendment protects with our own ardent views 
about the liberty that Americans should enjoy. The left realized that just concocting opinions out of thin air might result in negative political consequences for the American people, who continued to believe that the courts were supposed to interpret existing law, not make up new law. So lefty legal experts always looked for one or other constitutional provisions upon which to hang their ruling. Hence, the penumbras upon which Roe ultimately rested. Today, though, Roe's defenders have abandoned the Constitution, and they've manned the ramparts for democracy. They're mad, outraged, even that the ruling would overturn laws supposedly supported by the American people. Polls have replaced the Constitution as holy writ. (laughs) For instance, one writer insisted that those who support Roe's protections must show lawmakers and justices that they're about to do something very unpopular. Since that seems unlikely to change the result, some abortion absolutists revive talk of packing the court. Otherwise, in their view, democracy would fail. The Dobbs opinion leak, by the way, a shocking violation of court ethics, was viewed as an attempt to see if the public response might cause the court to reconsider, not the law, the way the public responded. Yet the legal lefties don't take this position on issues where the public disagrees with them. When is the last time a noted progressive law professor insisted that the Supreme Court uphold free speech restrictions intrusive police searches, and other assaults on civil liberties or criminal procedural protections because of public support. Or reject gay rights in marriage, which once were unpopular. After all, if the people believe that there's no such thing as unreasonable search and seizure, shouldn't the court implement that perspective in all of their rulings? Moreover, despite the abortion lobby's assumption that the American people are on its side, the public is almost equally split between pro-abortion, 49%, pro-life, 47%. A majority says it is pro-Roe, without understanding what Roe says or allows. A recent Gallup poll found that 19% of Americans wanted the procedure to be banned in all circumstances, 32% favored that it be legal in all circumstances, and 48% backed legality in only certain circumstances. When those people were asked more detailed questions, such as the moral acceptability of abortion, the public also divides sharply, almost down the middle. And the numbers have varied over time. But in contrast to other superheated social issues like gay marriage, the popular deadlock about abortion has continued. In September of 94, listen to these numbers. All the way back, September 94, 38% believed abortion should be legal only in a few circumstances. In January of 2000, turn of the century, remember in 94 the number was 38%, 2000 it was 39%. In May of 2010, it was 37%. 
Since 2000, the percentage believing abortion should be legal in any circumstance has never gone over 34%. Over the same period, the number claiming to be pro-choice never tops 51%. And the number claiming to be pro-life, which has hit 51%, never fell below 41%. Today, the political class is debating whether Dobbs will aid the Democrats by energizing otherwise disheartened left-wing activists. If so, this highlights the fact that opponents are acting on principle as opposed to politics. At least Politico's John Harris acknowledged that the decision was not politically determined, but contradicted those who believe that Supreme Court justices are pretenders, ideologues, and partisan hacks who try to disguise personal agendas behind black robes. In seeming shocked, he admitted that ideological aims and partisan ones are at least partly intention. To Alito's credit, he stated that justices shouldn't be affected by any extraneous influences such as concern about the public's reaction to our work. This is what the left should want as well if it is as devoted to the Constitution as it claims. During the era of Roe, liberal conservative judicial battles reflected a predictable pattern. The left would use the judiciary to turn its legislative agenda into court-made constitutional provisions. Then, right-leaning justices would be told that their belief in restraint required them to ratify the new precedent, turning it into settled law. Anyone who dare later challenge these rulings would be treated as a radical, threatening everything that Americans are supposed to hold dear and lefty jurisprudence would continue its expected advance. Alito's draft suggests that this process is toast. It is over. That has sparked a grief fest of the left, especially since at least some progressives recognize that their usual arguments don't work anymore. This is why they're tossing in the kitchen sink. For instance, Defense One warned that, quote, reversing Roe would harm military readiness. Abortion rights advocates warned. Seriously? The final indignity for legal lefties is recognition that legal conservatives are, well, they're celebrating what appears to be an imminent victory. For instance, Mary Ziegler of the Florida State University College of Law was unhappy with the Dobbs majority's well-supported arguments that Roe has deformed U.S. jurisprudence, abortion is different since it involves an independent life and more. She complained, quote, These are arguments that would be made by justices who are not merely assuring the demise of abortion rights, but delighting in it. But how would she greet the reversal of a decision that she believed to be, quote, egregiously wrong and deeply damaging, as the Dobbs draft termed Roe v. Wade? 
the American people as well as justices who support fidelity to the law in contrast to members of the make-it-up-as-they-go-along jurisprudential school should rejoice that success in a half-century quest to right a great constitutional wrong appears imminent. And I know I've gone long, but this is, this is my heart, folks. This debate, it has just hardly even begun. And it's long from over. No matter the outcome of this latest test of the constitutionality of Roe v. Wade, either the Pelosi-Biden federal government or some other administration bowing to the whims of the left will try to craft and pass a new federal abortion law. It will certainly happen. And the vitriol and the rancor will once again pit husbands against wives, parents against children, conservatives against liberals, or whatever moniker they decide to call themselves next. I still can't look at the leftist policies and call those progressive policies. I'm sorry. I have a problem calling them liberal policies in the first place in half a year. So we don't at TNN Live or Truth News Network. One point that had been mentioned in this latest war over the unborn is this. Abortion is far from something new. And it has no basis in biology or logic. And I'm going to get in trouble for this. Do these people really believe that the space of just an inch is actually the determinant if a biological clumps of cells is a thing or a baby? That thought is laughable. Yet trillions of dollars and tens of millions of abortions have been completed based on that very thing. And for what? Why didn't somebody on the left take to a podium at the Washington Mall and speak the truth about the intent and purpose of abortion today? This may hack you off, what I'm about to tell you. Honestly, that purpose has changed over thousands of years. It was established and remains a despicable religious blood sacrifice in the name of some cause or right or tradition. Human sacrifices have existed for centuries. And the spilling of an infant's blood throughout eternity has seemed to be more holy than that of others. So let the insults of Truth News Network begin. But facts are facts. And there are no facts that support the shedding of the blood of unborn children is not infanticide. Rather, there is plenty of biological evidence that proves the opposite. We're Americans. Let's don't let facts and unanswered questions stand in the way of shirking the responsibility of raising a child. After all, that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. I hope and pray we didn't offend you with that. But I got to tell you, I'm all in. I am pro-life to the nth degree. And it boils down to this. No, I'm not a female. I don't have a uterus. I don't have ovaries. 
I can't even begin to look at this picture from that perspective. But I feel like I don't have to. Here's why. How many Americans, how many people on the globe are willing to roll the dice knowing that there is a better than 50-50 chance that at some point in your history, there's better than a 50-50 chance, or at least a 50-50 chance that you're going to find out that when you propagated an abortion for yourself, for someone else, you killed somebody. Are you willing to take that chance? Are you willing to live with that once you ever find out? I'm Chad Hall, and I'm here with the first ever Silverado ZR2. This is probably the first time you've seen this truck, but I've been racing a prototype version for over a year. We just inspired this pre-production truck you see behind me. Let's go see what it'll do. Copy. It's got phenomenal power, acceleration, good ground clearance, skid protection, and you've got the Multimatic GSSV shocks, so it's just going to be that much more of a fun truck. You want to go a little faster? Go for it. Copy. It's an amazing truck. You're going to want to get your hands on one. Nervous? Oh, Blaze. Brings back so many good memories. Remember our road trip in 97? Our first real heart-to-heart. I've never seen any of your movies! Not even the ones we're in together! Hey, do you remember when that stalker kidnapped us? Yes! Blaze was there. Blaze. Do you have a barbecue? Or a cheddar jalapeno? Oh, remember when we stumbled into that turf war? Remember when you bought your first house? Ah! Hey, I'm Those are good times. They were golden. You ready? Seth, do you? I do. And Janet, do you? That's a yes. Election cycles come and go. White House reporters come and go. The truth is a diamond because it's forever. TNN, the Truth News Network. Your jeweler today is Dan Newman. Yeah, I know. Often it is difficult to find a determination, an absolute between what's factual and what is not factual, and that all boils down to opinions. I just encourage everybody, always be open to listen and consider those with opposite opinions in pretty much everything. Why? Simply because of this. We're not absolute. None of us are. We don't have absolute intellect. We don't have absolute positivity that everything we feel or think is the way it is. Now, I'm never, I never say that anybody should just automatically, because of that, compromise their thoughts and opinions. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying 
is embrace the possibilities. Consider the possibilities. You can never think too hard through these things. Thinking and finding facts should never be too hard. It should be part of what we do just because of who we are. So let me tell you this, this Supreme Court thing, this leak, probably the most atrocious thing that's ever happened. It happened once before in another case in the Supreme Court history. I I can't remember the exact circumstances, but it led to some of the same things we're experiencing now around the nation. And folks, between now and June, whenever the Supreme Court comes out with the complete version of this challenge to Roe v. Wade, whether it is to make Roe v. Wade go away or it's to confirm it, I don't know. Whichever way it goes, there are going to be millions of people that are going to be heartbroken, devastated, and mad. But there's more to that. There's more to this than we're even thinking about right now because we're all eaten up with emotions. Mark Penn, who was a former advisor to Bill and Hillary Clinton, he says about this Supreme Court leak, it was purposeful. It was intended to galvanize the Democrat base ahead of the midterms. His surface explanation, it deflects from a gambit to kill the filibuster, change voting rules, and keep Democrats in power. Think about the evil of that, if that is why whoever leaked this thing leaked it, to make it become so politically powerful that because of anger and hatred, people would go to the polls and vote. Marxism itself has penetrated our government institutions to an alarming extent. The strategy, it's not new, it's classic. Prioritize ends over constitutional principles. Divide and conquer. Promote violence and chaos. The result's always the same. Lawlessness and the degradation of the republic. Polarization is one of the keys to the totalitarian takeover of any country. In 1971, in his signature work, Rules for Radicals, Saul Alinsky, Hillary Clinton's go-to guy, he wrote this, All issues must be polarized. One acts decisively only in the conviction that all angels or on one side and all the devils are on the other. We, he's talking about him and his radical group back in the 60s, we exploited racism for our own purposes. Alinsky disciple Barack Obama followed the formula, has been a divider-in-chief since becoming president. He is most likely the main driver behind the hyper-divisive Biden regime. Marxists today, if you're a Democrat, you're listening, you're not going to like this, but Marxists today control the Democrat Party. Besides racism, their polarizing issues include climate change, COVID-19, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, gender ideology, whatever serves their purposes at the moment. Everybody who opposes them, you're evil. To protect the collective good, constitutional individual rights got to be sacrificed. The riots back in 2020, 
COVID-19 created an opportunity for a cabal of Marxist oligarchs and their media and bureaucrats with which they could steal the 2020 elections. With public ignorance of the cabal, it falsely presented incompetent Joe Biden as a return to normal. Oh my gosh. The Marxist plan is always crises to justify a totalitarian takeover. This is the real reason for the Biden regime's war on domestic energy. Green energy is not their objective. The regime prefers foreign energy that pollutes more than domestic or Canadian production. You realize that. European oil and gas is way more climate unfriendly than any produced in North America. But see, that that's immaterial. It doesn't fit. It doesn't play into the ultimate objective of the globalist gang. Oligarchs joined Marxists because Trump's policies promoted domestic growth, led to lower profits abroad, especially in China. Oligarchs oppose reciprocal trade deals with China and disincentives to do the Chinese Communist Party's bidding. U.S. oligarchs have betrayed the country from which they gained every bit of their wealth. Bureaucrats want more power, less accountability for our elected leaders. Democrats and Republicans have been guilty of permitting mission creep, expanding bureaucracy, facilitating oligarch policies. By favoring U.S. workers, Trump left oligarchs to work with only Democrats and rhinos. Establishment Republicans who favor oligarchs, they're losing their power. People are waking up and realizing that. Republican voters see that Trump's policies help the U.S., while Democrat policies destroy her. Marxists know they will be voted out of power once the public sees their policies' results. We're living in the middle of them. We're drowning in inflation. And that's just one. Needing to nullify elections, Marxists presented the inaptly named For the People Act as their first legislation in 2021. It would have eliminated voter ID, mandated massive unsolicited mailing of ballots to people on every state list. Updating the list would be prohibited. A more appropriate name would be the Democrat Fraud License Act. So they knew their bill is unconstitutional. And wanting to consolidate power, Marxists need to pack the Supreme Court to guarantee political rulings in perpetuity. We all watch the same Marxist running our country today install in Guatemala a high court that illegally destroyed business there, persecuted political enemies, protected political allies. This is the real goal of court packing, ruling through arbitrary, unchecked power. To pass the legislation to execute their plan, Marxists had to kill the filibuster. So far... They have failed, thank God. The leaked draft opinion raises the issue once again. Bernie Sanders immediately proposed to codify Roe v. Wade, for which the Senate must kill the filibuster to do it. Commentators such as Penn say some who would have voted against Democrats in November will switch back to Democrats. Why? Because of abortion. The Supreme Court will issue its ruling toward the end of June. That still allows plenty of time for Penn's scenario. 
The leak gained May and June to try to kill the filibuster, pass the voting law, and pack the court. Another explanation for the leak was that it would pressure the justices to change their ruling. That wouldn't help the Marxist revolution. If the court were to uphold Roe v. Wade, Marxists would lose a wedge issue. Reacting to the news about the abortion case, Biden said, quote, This MAGA crowd is really the most extreme political organization that's existed in American history. This isn't surprising. It's consistent with his Marxist demonization of all of his political opponents. According to Biden, terrorism from white supremacy is the most lethal threat to the homeland, not ISIS, not Al-Qaeda. He forgot to mention the burning, the destroying, the destruction across our land in 2020 by domestic terrorists. Who burned Minneapolis almost to the ground? Who destroyed or almost destroyed the Miracle Mile in Chicago? Marxist. That's who. Biden's fear-mongering contends evil MAGA subversives Having one on abortion will deprive other supposed victim groups of the right. Marxists want increased anger and polarization to provoke killing the filibuster. So far, Senators Joe Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema, Democrat of Arizona, have stood firm against this new pressure. It's unlikely to change their position. But this is the only play for the Marxist revolution to avoid the will of the people. Voters are going to reject Democrats because of the negative results of Democrat policies. We need more awareness of how the destruction we see is a deliberate Marxist strategy. It didn't just happen. We need Republican leaders who will pull out Marxism from its roots in education, the bureaucracy, and business. And listen, guess what popped up over the weekend? Barack Obama's wingman. Now, who was he? Who is that? Who was Barack Obama's wingman in their eight years in the White House? Eric Holder. Now, listen to what Obama's got Eric Holder doing. You know, Democrats are running out of time to stop this 2024 White House run by Donald Trump. They're scared to death of Donald Trump. Why? Because he's a people's guy. He's a people's guy. In his campaign for 2016 election, he enraged a lot of Democrats, but he scared a bunch of them to death. Why is that? Because he had the people believing the people could be in charge again. That constitutional thing, you know, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. They don't want him back. Intense pressure is today being put on Attorney General Merrick Garland. What for? Pull the trigger on what will be a brazen abuse of power by the Biden administration against a political adversary. Eric Holder is pressuring Merrick Garland to indict Donald Trump for insurrection. Yesterday, Holder, Obama's wingman, He was on CBS's Face the Nation, where he talked about the idea Trump could face indictment, something that Democrats, much of the media, 
their celebrity mouthpieces have been clamoring for, despite the purely political nature of such an unprecedented preemptive strike against the opposition party's potential nominee. After bemoaning election integrity laws put into place in states with Republican governors to bolster voter confidence after the 2020 election, which many harbored doubts about, by the way, as to its legitimacy, the conversation turned to getting Trump, a task that has eluded his enemies now for five going on six years. Mayor Garland, you mentioned, he's now in your old job as Attorney General. That's the host of Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan said. There have been critics of him who said that he isn't being aggressive enough around the prosecutions regarding January 6th. Do you think that's right? Holder said, no one knows. I mean, you know, I have great faith in Merrick and the people at the Justice Department. We won't really know how aggressive they have been until they are before a camera and announcing a decision either to indict certain people or not indict certain people. Don't think he was sending a message there, do you? Here's my prediction, Holder said. At some point, people at the DOJ, perhaps that prosecutor down in Atlanta, are going to have to make a determination about whether or not they want to indict Donald Trump. There is going to be, would you do it, Brennan interrupted? Well, I think there's going to be sufficient factual information, Holder said, seeming to indicate insider knowledge of what could be coming. And I think that there is going to be sufficient proof of intent. And then the question becomes, what's the impact of such an indictment? And he pontificated a little bit. He said, I'm an institutionalist. My initial thought was not to indict the former president out of concern of what, how divisive it would be, but given what we have learned, I think that he probably has to be held accountable. Garland has so far been reluctant to bow to Democrats who have been calling for him to make such an inflammatory move, but with Trump hitting the road, increasingly looking like a man who is running again, the regime and a party that loves to pontificate about democracy could be on the cusp of taking an action that is typically within the domain of third world banana republics. Third world banana republics. That's what Eric Holder, Barack Obama, et al. are hoping for. Their only hope to perpetuate their push towards Marxism and totalitarianism light. Here in the United States, they've got to stop Donald Trump. And you know what frosts them all? <laughs> and his endorsements for the midterms, the elections in the primaries that have already taken place. You know what his record is going into uh, this week? Of those who he has come out and endorsed, Donald Trump is 50 for 50. 50 of his endorsements have so far won their primaries. That is frosting all the leftists beyond imagination. You can book it. Real truth, real news. TNN, the Truth News Network. American Ladders and Scaffolds, deal with the experts. 
scaffolding rental and setup, installation of truck racks, Lear truck caps, tonneau covers, and van shelving, fall protection, ladder and scaffold training and inspections, little giant ladders, custom access ladders and guardrails for commercial buildings, American Ladders and Scaffolds, delivery everywhere, every day. American Ladders and Scaffolds, we take you higher, we take you higher. The I'm crazy hungry, so she's got to be too. Slide through the Mickey D's drive-thru to get a Big Mac. Right after I order her quarter pounder with cheese, because I don't know everything, but I do know what my girl's feeling hangry meal. Get it at McDonald's when you buy one of your faves, like the Big Mac, quarter pounded with cheese, 10-piece chicken McNuggets, or filet of fish and get another for just a dollar. Prices and participation may vary. Valid on item of equal or lesser value. So, Miss Harris, what makes you think you're a good fit with us here at Schmidt, Starks, and Soprensky? Oh, sir, there are so many reasons. I specialized in research and theoretical studies for several years at the Southampton Institute, mm -hmm. preceded by intensive graduate studies at Syracuse. <laughs> Certainly, my skills are well suited for a position here at Schmidt, Starks, and Soprensky. Oh, thanks. A job interview and a root canal on the same day. Want to get away? Get the heck out of there with Southwest Airlines. Fly coast to coast for $99 or less by November 3rd. It was nice meeting you, sir. Yes, we'll get back to you soon. Soon. Southwest Airlines, a symbol of freedom. Call 1-800-IFLY-SWA. First hour of the show in the record books, the day after Mother's Day. And welcome to TNN Live. We're so thankful that you choose, and it is a choice. And we're very thankful for that, for your choosing to join us here. Let me ask you this before we move on. Just thought about this. Have uh, have you signed up for true, uh, I don't want to get it wrong. It's the exact name. I want to, I want to say it exactly the way it's supposed to be. Truth Social. Truth Social. That's the new um, social website that Donald Trump and uh, his supporters have started. Have you gotten your enrollment in it and are you able to use it? If you are, please know this. We are able, this is going to be, and as a matter of fact, as of this past Friday, it became another outlet for our podcast Minutes after each of these shows goes off the air every Monday through Friday, minutes later, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, iHeart Podcasts, TuneIn Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and even Facebook until the end of this month, they pick up the show and you can get them just by going to those pages, those podcast sites. Well, True Social, as of last Friday, is one of those spots too. So how do you find it? You just go to Truth News Network, at Truth News Network, or at Dan Newman. Truth News Network pops up, and every day you can click on the podcast Go button and get it for absolutely nothing, no cost at all. Just thought I'd throw that in there for you. And I know it's a tremendous sacrifice for anybody and everybody to take two hours out of a day nonstop, especially Monday through Friday, that time of the morning, 9 to 11 a.m. Central, and just 
focus in on it. Not many people can do it. But through the week, you're going to be able to go grab some, some of the hot ones. And speaking of that, if you missed Friday's show, Congressman Mike Johnson from the 4th Congressional District of Louisiana was with us the first hour. You need to go check that out if you don't check anything out, anything else out. So I want to weigh in and let you hear some people in their opinions on some of the things, the issues that we're dealing with now as Americans and what's ahead. But I'm going to start it by letting you listen to somebody that is on the other side of the globe, that is weighing in on our stuff here in the United States, our stuff being pretty much Joe Biden, his administration, and the Democrats. Sky News weighed in over the weekend. Here's what they have to say looking ahead at our midterms later this fall. As a Republican strategist, John, how do you snapshot or how do you look at Donald Trump in early days of May 2022 and where he sits going forward? Well, the Trump agenda, you know, of low taxes, actually enforcing our own laws along our border and energy independence are now resonating with the American people. In several surveys, in fact, one that came out yesterday, it showed Trump beating Biden by 14 points in a rematch and even more if he runs against Kamala Harris. Um, so it looks like Americans are now beginning to understand that, take, take the view that politics isn't personality, it's policy. And they're seeing the effects of Biden's policies, which are hugely unpopular, over two to one in the economy alone, which is far and away the number one issue. Even Latino voters um, are, are now split to leaning Republican, and they were supposed to be the bulwark of the Democrat Party going forward. Even black voters, where Republicans had only gotten six to eight percent, are now getting a quarter. So the Democrats are looking at a landslide uh, catastrophe in 2022, and be, the Democrat Party becoming more the party of the elite coastal media and intelligence intelligentsia and the faculty lounges in the, the East and West Coast while they're losing the working and middle class of all colors. And that's a real threat to the Democrats as they banked their future on a rising electorate of a, of a growing number of brown voters in America, which are now souring on the Democrats. So American politics are scrambled and President Trump, if he wishes the nomination, will be certainly very, very difficult to beat. And even the never Trumpers like Mitt Romney can see that. But uh, the primary is two years away, and we'll have to see who runs. There is a first, uh, I guess that would be considered a objective look-see as to where Donald Trump fits into this midterm thing. And then, of course, the 2024 general election in which we'll be electing or re-electing Joe Biden or electing somebody else to be president to follow him, which brings up a different thought thinking about Joe Biden running for re-election, and he makes it very clear still, he's going to run. He's planning on running. What is the situation as Americans are watching all of these things on Joe Biden's watch, and they're watching the failures and how those failures are directly impacting every American in ways that most Americans have never seen? Most Americans were not around in 1976, 7, 8, 9. Jimmy Carter was our president then. That's when we had an econo uh, economical situation that looked eerily like what we're facing now. Inflation out the wazoo, interest rates skyrocketing then, and they're already on their way up, according to the Federal Reserve, who raised rates a week ago and have uh, promised they're going to raise more rates. 
Senator John Cornyn out of Texas over the weekend, he weighed in on exactly what's going on on the watch of this president and what Americans are looking at and what we can expect. Bidenomics are the single biggest threat to pursuit of the American dream by middle and lower income families in America today. We actually know what works when it comes to uh, economics uh, because we've had this experiment, this laboratory of democracy known as the states. In Texas from 2010 to 2020, we saw 4 million people added to our population. I think people from New York moved to Florida. People from out west in California moved to Texas. But people actually can vote with their feet when the economies of their states and the policies of their states strangle their aspirations and opportunities to pursue their dreams. And what's so important about that is that when you are, when your policies welcome job creators, people who will actually create then an opportunity for workers to earn a livelihood and put food on their table. That is an essential element. Those are essential elements of the American dream. But unfortunately, loyal Americans can't flee national or federal economic policies under Joe Biden. I think most people thought in the 2020 election they were going to get the real Joe Biden and maybe Joe Biden middle of the road economic policies. But what they got were Bernie Sanders and and AOC's and the squad's economic policies. Oh, by the way, they call themselves democratic socialists, which is actually an oxymoron. Their policies are not democratic. They are socialist. Redistribution of wealth, high regulation, bigger government, and a worse standard of living for the American people. Democrats just don't get it, or they think we don't get them conservatives, majority of Americans. Do you realize that majority of Americans consider themselves to be conservatives or in a worst case scenario, be moderates, consider themselves to be right down the middle? And these same Americans that they don't like the labels to start off with, they're living their lives in these policies that this administration and any other presidential administration They marshal and get Congress to pass them. They put them out with executive orders. And we as Americans are forced to live with it, like $5 gasoline, like interest rates going through the roof, like groceries, going to the grocery store and having empty shelves. Let me give you an example. Saturday, Saturday, Shreveport, Louisiana. Southern sleepy little town, not a little town, but 100,000 people or so. And we got a bunch of Kroger scattered around town, one of the biggest grocery chains in America. And so we in our house, we love grape jam. And the only reason we love jam more than we do grape jelly is because it's easier to spread grape jam than it is to spread grape jelly. That's the only reason. Every weekend for the past month, Either my wife or I or both of us together go to the grocery store and we're looking for grape jam. You go to Kroger or any other big grocery store chain, 
they're going to not just have grape jam. They're going to have 20 different versions, brands, all those kind of things. Do you know that over the last month and a half, two months, Kroger has no grape jam? None. It has jelly and not a lot of jelly. Looking around Kroger's store on a Saturday, a weekend where they're stocked to the hilt because that's when most people get, get to go shopping. They're not working. There were empty sections of shelves on Saturday. Why is that? Well, it's because of the Biden economic policies. I don't care what anybody tries to tell us out of the White House press briefings, uh, Joe Biden speaking to anybody, any of the representatives in the United States House of Representatives or the Senate, you cannot honestly tell the American people that all of our shortages, all of our inflation are not directly due to the policies of this administration. Every time in American history that we've had a president, which is every time, all the time, our economics and our policies that we live through are directly because of the policies that are implemented into regulations and laws by this president or by the United States Congress and the laws that they passed, period. That controls our lives. Joe Biden is in the White House. He's the president of the United States. Though they try to tell you when they took office in January of 2021, the United States was in a shamble. The only shamble we were in had to do with COVID-19 and the radioactive fallout from the bureaucratic red-handed policies and egregious lockdowns that had been foisted on us through fear by a bunch of non-elected bureaucrats, spearheaded by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Everything else in our lives, we had no inflation. Our incomes were up as Americans. Our taxes were down. Our government tax revenues had never been as high. We were on a roll even though we had COVID-19. Here comes Joe Biden. We still got COVID-19, but then he began to crank and crank and crank with Marxist totalitarian economic policies and procedures, and Americans just backed off. Let's just wait and see what happens, we said. And we've watched our nation at its structure, skeleton structure, rapidly deteriorate. Not because of any foreign intrusion, but because domestic intrusion by political leftists that are seizing power, giving it to the government, taking it away from the American people. There's no other way to define it or even explain it. So here we are. We haven't even had our midterm elections. It's coming up in November. That's when every member of the United States House of Representatives either comes up for re-election or a vacant seat will be filled by a candidate somewhere around the nation running for office. Two years later, the president, the office of the presidency will come up to either re-elect the current inhabitant of the White House or pick a new one. So looking at the array of the possibilities out there on the landscape, we already talked about Donald Trump on the Republican side. There are other Republicans that should Trump go down for whatever reason or reasons and doesn't run. There are plenty of Republicans out there that are talking about, making noise about 
throwing their hats into the ring. I'll just tell you this in advance. There's nobody out there now that any Republican voters are looking at that will be able to, I'm certain, do what Donald Trump did when he took power in January of 2017 when he took his oath of office. But what about on the other side? What about if Joe Biden doesn't run? Who's going to run on the Democrat side? While you're thinking about that, let me let you listen to some ideas from some other folks. The Democratic Party is terrified of the idea of Joe Biden running for president again because they think he will lose. So they're undermining him, obviously. But if it's not Biden, who would it be? Who are the other potential candidates? Well, Dana Perino is one of the best people in the world at thinking this stuff through. She's co-anchor of America's Newsroom, co-host of The Five, a friend of ours, probably a lot of other things, too, a dog owner. She joins us tonight. Dana, thanks for coming on. So, it's an honor to be here. I, Let's just stipulate that there are a lot of Democrats who don't want Biden to run again. Nothing personal, but they, his approval rating suggests he shouldn't run again. So if it's not Biden, who would it be, do you think? Well, do you remember a few months ago I came on your program and I suggested to everybody to keep a watch on Hillary Rodham Clinton because yeah. she was making noise about how the election was taken from her, uh, that she would be uh, somebody who could save the party, really. Now, there's three people who are saying this on the record. One is Hillary Clinton, the other is Bernie Sanders, and now your friend, Liz Warren. So they yeah. all three are on the record are basically saying, look, if Biden chooses not to run again, I will run. Although Hillary has not said that, she's basically intimated it. Then there's all of these people that are on background in all of the mainstream media. Have you noticed this, Tucker? It's like, um, you know, Joe Biden is leading us to a terrible place. And so then the question becomes, well, would it be Kamala Harris? Immediately, if Joe Biden decided not to run, and I predict that if you were to make that decision, it would be the Wednesday before Thanksgiving or the Monday after Thanksgiving. So I want to be on record saying that. Immediately, the question is, will you endorse Kamala Harris? And I think that is it really in question and unlikely. I think he sees a lot of his son, Beau, in Mayor Pete, I also think that Stacey Abrams, if she were to somehow win the governorship in Georgia, she's an automatic entry into this race. Jared Polis is the governor of Colorado. People are kind of interested in him. He would be a way out of the box choice, but a governor would be probably a better bet for the Democrats, though. I think that they are in for not only a bad 2022, but to me, it looks really hard for me to understand how they would turn it around by 2024. It feels that it sure feels that way. Then there's Barack Obama who's already served his two terms, of course, but he's emerged to weigh in on like some of the biggest policy issues of the moment, which foreign presidents don't typically do. Do you see any significance in that? Well, I think part of the things that we're dealing with now as a country is that we've never had so many former presidents still living, you know, this long. Right. I think Jimmy Carter has been, hasn't been president since 1980, and you know, he is still with us, and although he doesn't comment on foreign policy as much as he used to. He still likes to weigh in once in a while. President Obama is a young man. He's got this uh, Netflix deal. He's got a Spotify deal. He's out there and about. And also, I think that he takes umbrage at the idea that uh, Joe Biden says that he's the most progressive president because Barack Obama wants that title. I also think that President Obama truly believes that in 2016, had he been able to be the one running against Donald Trump, that he would have run. And so in some ways, he's like thinking that he is still the kingmaker and that Joe Biden in 2024 is not going to be in that position. That position, I think, is still held by Barack Obama. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. Dana Prino, thanks so much. Great, Great to, see, to you. see you tonight. Bye-bye. It's always good to get another perspective about things and get a perspective from uh, Dana Perino, which I got to be honest with you. She served in the Bush 43 White House as a press secretary. Uh, But I've ever since then, she seems to be kind of walking the middle line. And she does that politically, the middle. She walks it very graciously. I have a lot of respect for her as a Fox News regular. She's one of the few in news today that have been able to keep some um, picture, even if it's just a little bit when, they, when they're on television and they're doing their thing, to have some uh, impartiality. It seems like the common thing now is you got to be all in left or all in right if you're going to get a job, a news anchor job on any of the big networks. We've got some news about a really big show that's been around for a long time on a major network, not Fox News, that is going away. We have that. We're going to hear from a couple of moms from California that are a little bit hacked off about the LBGTQ teaching that is happening in classrooms where their kids are and moms don't know about it, didn't know about it, and nobody obviously parentally has approved any of it. Also, Senator Mike Lee from Utah. There were a lot of people that uh, felt like he was going to be a real good candidate to serve on the Supreme Court if Donald Trump had an uh, an opening. Obviously, there were three, and I think Mike Lee would like to be a justice on the Supreme Court, maybe at some point in his future, but he's not ready yet. Well, late last week in a congressional Senate hearing, He went nose-to-nose with Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. We've got that back and forth. You don't want to miss that. We've got a half hour plus five minutes left. Don't go anywhere. Back right after this. Introducing the all-new Infiniti QX60. Take on life in style. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all-natural, juicy, grass-fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food. With no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids. Only at Carl's Jr. When your cable company keeps you on hold, you get angry. When you get angry, you go blow off steam. When you go blow off steam, accidents happen. When accidents happen, you get an eye patch. When you get an eye patch, people think you're tough. 
When people think you're tough, people want to see how tough. And when people want to see how tough, you wake up in a roadside ditch. Don't wake up in a roadside ditch. Get rid of cable and upgrade to DirecTV. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Violence, screaming obscenities, heated arguments, angry crowds, roller derby? Nah. Election season. And your voice of calm is truthnewsnet.org. I love that comparison to roller derby. One of the most violent sports ever. On roller skates, go figure. Well, speaking about popularity and policies that are popular, unpopular, who's going to run, who's not going to run, Regarding President Biden, did you know his favorability rating in his own state is now down to 46% in Delaware, while his disapproval rating is 49%. He's down a net three points in his own home state. Remember, he was a senator in Delaware for 36 years, and he has watched just in the last few weeks His approval rating has shrunk. In April, it was 50% in Delaware, dropping from 62% at the same time a year before. In 41 states, 41 out of 50, the president is underwater, according to the civics poll. He holds a net positive approval rating in Democrat states like Vermont, California, Washington, New York, and Maryland. But in Rhode Island, Biden's net approval rating is just plus three points, in Illinois, plus one point. His highest disapproval rating, go figure, is in Wyoming, 77% disapproval. And in West Virginia, 75%. His respective ratings are important in those two states because Liz Cheney, who's a Republican from Wyoming, and Senator Joe Manchin, who's a Democrat from West Virginia, they are both facing political headwinds in upcoming elections. In Wyoming, here's an example. Liz Cheney is running for re-election against Trump-endorsed Harriet Hageman. Cheney has allied herself with Democrats for whatever reason or reason, and it's because she hates Donald Trump. And she's refused to support any of the America First policies, which are hellaciously popular in her state. Trump has scheduled a rally by the way, for Saturday, May 28th at 4 p.m. on Memorial Day weekend in Wyoming to boost support for Hageman. The primary is going to be held on August 16th there. West Virginia, a state that voted for Trump in 2020 by nearly 40 points, is represented by Democrat Joe Manchin. He's routinely opposed many, but not all, of Biden's radical initiatives. For instance, Manchin opposes nuking the filibuster to codify abortion with a simple majority vote. Manchin also opposes Biden's Green New Deal-like energy agenda, which would transpose the American economy from capitalism to socialism and would destroy the energy sector, coal industry specifically in his state. There are a lot of people that uh, have been waiting for Joe Manchin to actually flip and come across the aisle and become a Republican. And he has pushed that possibility away, although he's never said absolutely not. So what else is happening to other folks in politics regarding polls? Two of Michigan's top Democrats are neck and neck with Republican opponents in their races for re-election this year. 
This poll was conducted by ARW Strategies from April 18th to 20th. The results were released over the weekend by Republican Matthew DiPerno, who is hoping to unseat Attorney General Dana Nessel in November. The poll found Governor Gretchen Whitmer, that lightning rod governor in Michigan. They found she's one point behind a generic Republican candidate receiving 45% to the GOP candidates, 46%. 8% of respondents said they were undecided. She is expected to face a tough re-election race this year in the Michigan battleground. Cook political reports shifted the race from leaning Democrat to toss-up in December. One recent general election poll found the governor just one point ahead of her closest opponent, former Detroit police chief James Craig. Craig is the current frontrunner in the Republican primary, but the primary field is packed with other candidates, including a chiropractor, Garrick Soldano, businessman Perry Johnson, real estate broker and activist Ryan Kelly, conservative commentator Tudor Dixon, and former car dealership owner Kevin Rinke. The ARW poll also tested a matchup between DiPerno and Nestle in the race for attorney general found Nestle ahead of DiPerno by one point, 42 to 41%. Another 17% of respondents said they were undecided on the race. Do you believe we're already into the polling thing for elections? It's like we just finished one. And that's not the case. It was in 2020. But it seems like it was just yesterday. It's like we never quit politicking. We never quit campaigning. We never quit running for office or talking about who's in and who's out and who's ahead and who's not ahead. And of course, the only thing in the polls today that stick out to me is Joe Biden in Delaware. He's upside down. His own state doesn't like him. That's got to be disheartening for whoever you are. I wonder if Jill has told Joe about that. I wonder what he would say if she's told him and somebody asked him. It's interesting. So I mentioned our little foray into Kroger in Shreveport over the weekend. Food prices around the nation, they're still up in April. Barely easing from March's record highs. And they're posing challenges to food security amid ongoing market tightness. The Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, called FAO, said that its food price index, which follows the most globally traded commodities, that it went down by 1.2 points over the month in April after making a giant leap of 18.6 points in March to hit an all-time high of 159.7 points. The small decrease in April to the index is welcome, particularly for low-income food deficit countries, but still food prices remain close to their recent highs, and that reflects persistent market tightness posing a challenge to global food security for the most vulnerable among us. The slight decline in the food index last month was led by a big drop in the price of vegetable oil and a modest fall in the price of cereals. We're just keeping our eye on these kind of measure so you can kind of follow a trend. You can't just look at one and just go, oh my God, and make a decision on it. You just can't do that. And the opposite's true as well. 
Remember this, polls are people that are willing to say something. Doesn't necessarily mean they're willing to tell you the truth. A lot of people that get phone calls from polling agencies purposely don't tell the truth. That's why you have polls on pretty much every issue and they're all over the place. You just never get a handle on what's real and what's not. Well, we got some news over the weekend that uh, it may surprise some of you, but it didn't surprise me. A top Biden administration official in this brand new Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board has really strong connections to controversial anti-American billionaire George Soros. Disinformation Governance Board leader Jennifer Paschal has three connections to Soros. Before being chosen to serve on the Governance Board, dubbed by critics as the Biden administration's Ministry of Truth, the Homeland Security Deputy General Counsel, Cyber and Technology, had served as an Open Society Institute fellow, according to this report. That's Soros's number one, quote-unquote, not-for-profit, Open Society. The Soros-founded and chaired grant-making network claims to back civil society groups around the world. Their intent is promoting justice, independent media, justice, education, justice, and public health. And of course, I use justice three times because their version of justice isn't the same as mine and yours or even that of Webster's Dictionary. It's known for supporting leftist movements like Defund the Cops and Black Lives Matter. Pascal has also served as a senior counterterrorism counsel at Human Rights Watch. That's a human rights organization funded by George Soros. According to Media Research Center, Soros gave the organization a little bit, $32,106,746. million plus between 2000 and 2014. The Brown University and Harvard Law School graduate also worked as a founding editor of Just Security, an online publication publication also funded by Soros. And Just Security focuses on national security and foreign policy and human rights analysis. Soros gave Just Security, an NYU Rice Center on Law and Security project, a million bucks in grants between 2017 and 2019. Soros and many of his funding recipients are actively involved in fact-checking programs, wherein an organization assumes the role of being the arbiter of truth. And typically, they're never named that by someone else. They just rise up and say, hey, 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 we're fact-checkers. you got to listen to what we say because we're the arbiters of truth. Most notable so-called fact-checking organizations backed by Soros include the left-leaning Pointer Institute's International Fact-Checking Network and UK-based Full Fact. The Pointer Institute in January published an open letter from fact-checkers to YouTube calling for more censorship of the platform, claiming it is used by unscrupulous actors to manipulate and exploit others and to organize and fundraise themselves. The Britain-based fact-checker Full Fact in 2020 denied the validity of the lab leak theory in explaining the origins of COVID, 
only to be faced later by major outlets acknowledging the possibility of a lab leak later on during the course of the pandemic. The fact that Soros has one of his former fellows leading Biden's government-sanctioned Ministry of Truth should bother every American citizen. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, he revealed late last month that the Department of Homeland Security had formed a disinformation governance board headed by Nina Jankowicz, who once deemed news of the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop to be part of Russian disinformation. Virtually all news outlets now acknowledge the laptop and its contents are authentic. Jankowitz, she was a former disinformation fellow with the Wilson Center who worked for the Foreign Ministry of Ukraine on a Fulbright Policy Fellowship. During her time with the National Democratic Institute, she supervised the Institute's Russia and Belarus programs. News of this ministry of truth drew outrage among Republicans and free speech advocates in light of the Biden administration's hyperbolic definition of what constitutes extremist and disinformation. Republicans vowed to thwart the board from stifling the First Amendment rights of Americans through legislative action. And if you were with us on Friday, you heard Congressman Mike Johnson talk exactly about that. That legislation was issued late last week to make sure that no federal money is used to fund that governance board. And why in the heck they'd make it a subdivision of Homeland Security is beyond me. Well, have you wondered where Joe Biden has been of late? You seem... Every now and then in front of a microphone, you seem getting on and off Air Force One, Marine One. It's very interesting. Whenever I see him walking towards a television camera and a microphone, I always tune in because you never know what he's going to say. You never know how valid anything he said is going to be. Some news popped up over the weekend. That's one good thing about weekends. Typically... Every weekend, some big news, political news pops out, and they always wait till after 5 o'clock D.C. time on Friday afternoon. Why is that? Because most of the news reporters, except the news weekend staff, have already gone. They've left for the beach for the weekend. So there's very little coverage about the big things. Not so much this past weekend. Biden, we found out, has given Amazon for which billionaire Jeff Bezos serves as chairman of the board, gave him a little uh, pat on the back in the form of a $10 billion federal contract. $10B billion federal dollar contract. Joe to Amazon. Despite having pledged to American union workers not to reward corporations that are accused of union-busting tactics, which... Amazon is charged with doing that. For years, Amazon has been accused of trying to stop its warehouse workers across the U.S. from unionizing amid reports that Amazon has put its workforce in dangerous scenarios under ruthless shipping quotas. Going back to August of 2021, the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, 
found that Amazon had violated labor laws preventing its warehouse workers from unionizing when they tried to do so in Bessemer, Alabama. In February, Amazon was again accused of trying to prevent the warehouse workers from unionizing at the same facility again. Last month, warehouse workers at one of Amazon's facilities in Staten Island, New York, voted to form the corporation's first union. Amazon is now challenging the vote to unionize. Following the vote, Amazon has reportedly fired more than six of the Staten Island warehouse managers who fought to form the union. A report from The Lever reveals that the Biden administration, despite Amazon's history of interfering in unionization efforts, has rewarding Amazon with a massive federal contract, having vowed not to do so. Here's what the lever reported. A day later, NextGov reported that Biden's National Security Agency, that's the NSA, ratified a $10 billion cloud computing contract for Amazon, which hired the brother of Biden's top aide as a lobbyist days after the 2020 presidential election. There's no conflict of interest there. There's no conflict. None whatsoever, just $10 billion worth. The contract for the company's web services division is codenamed Wild and Stormy and is distinct from another massive Pentagon cloud contract on which Amazon is also currently bidding. A few days after Amazon got this NSA contract, the Amazon Labor Union lost its second union election by a two-to-one margin at another Staten Island warehouse after Amazon mounted a furious campaign to halt the organizing drive. In effect, while Amazon was doubling down on its union busting, the Biden administration was delivering a big federal contract to the company, signaling to Amazon executives that he is so far not interested in fulfilling his pledge, which is to use the government's purchasing power to be the most pro union president. Remember this, he was campaigning for president, and as part of his campaign promises, he laid out a plan to stop corporations like Amazon from getting those big contracts from the federal government after having been accused of union-busting taxes. He promised to ensure federal dollars don't flow to employers who engage in union-busting activities, participate in wage theft, or violate labor law. Here's what his campaign pledge states. Biden will institute a multi-year federal debarment for all employers who illegally oppose unions. Buildings on debarment efforts pursued in the Obama-Biden administration. Biden will ensure federal contracts only go to employers who sign neutrality agreements committing not to run any union campaigns. He also will only award contracts to employers who support their workers including those who pay a $15 per hour minimum wage and family-sustaining benefits. The tax dollars of hardworking families should not be used to damage the standard of living of those same families. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a Democrat from New York. She spoke at a union rally for the warehouse workers late last month, but has been silent on Biden's billion-dollar contract to Amazon. 
Meanwhile, Bernie Sanders lobbied Biden to not reward Amazon with a federal contract, stating that the corporation has time and time again deployed union-busting tactics to stop warehouse workers from organizing. So what the heck is going on with that? Follow the money. Follow the money. Only thing that matters in this story, if you're asking the question, why in the world would Biden give a $10 billion cloud computing contract to Amazon? All you need to know is this. Amazon hired the brother of Biden's top aide as a lobbyist days after the 2020 presidential election. That's all that matters. All you got to do is follow that. There's your explanation. Why, why, why? It's simple. It's always this. Just follow the money. We're going to take our final our final break of the morning. And when we come back, you don't want to miss this. Two moms went toe-to-toe with school boards in California, if not the most, top two most liberal states regarding education, public education, critical race theory, LGBTQ being taught in schools and all that. Well, they got busted. These two moms went postal on them on Friday. Get some popcorn and pull up a chair. (laughs) That's next at TNN. Not just political, not just lifestyle, but always relevant. Real truth, real news, TNN, the Truth News Network. Here's the latest traffic report. Looks like miles of trouble-free driving with Napa Auto Parts. Your local Napa Auto Parts dealer in Modesto has a full line of quality parts for your car or truck. Napa Auto Parts keeps America running and Modesto Auto and Truck is ready to keep your vehicle running in tip-top shape for years to come. So if you think your car or truck needs help under the hood, think of Napa Auto Parts at Modesto Auto and Truck Parts, 924 G Street in downtown Modesto. 529-8342. 529-8342. Welcome to Staples. Staples guy, my company has like seven different printers. How's your ink selection? Behold, Staples Wall of Ink. Just wow. A huge selection of ink and toner guaranteed in stock. Hello, awesome. If it's not, we take $10 off and ship it to you free. Pinch me. I said pinch. I heard you. New low prices on ink and toner and an in-stock guarantee. Staples, make more happen. Nowadays, it's more important than ever to know the value of a dollar, or three, or four, or five, or even six. New Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. Tasty breakfast combos that give you more bang for your bucks. Get a wake-up wrap with sausage and a medium-hot coffee for $3. A bacon with cream cheese spread and a medium-hot coffee for $4. A bacon, egg, and cheese croissant with a medium-hot coffee for $5. Or a power breakfast sandwich, and you guessed it, a medium-hot coffee for $6. Dunkin' Go-To's, now with brews. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Exclusions apply. Limited time offer. You've heard the saying, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. It's nowhere in the Bible. I used to think it was, but it's not. But I can tell you this, it is absolutely truth. You want to make somebody mad and you get to pick who you make mad, I suggest, especially you guys that are married or thinking about getting married, I suggest that you find another candidate to hack off other than a woman, especially a mom. 
Listen to these two moms that go off in these California public school board meetings. I'm sorry, are we doing Bible studies in classrooms? No, we're not, right? So why is this certain agenda being pushed into the classrooms? I'm here to bring awareness to the emails that had surfaced earlier this month. The one I find most disturbing of all is of a third grade teacher trying to talk about sex with eight-year-old students. These are eight-year-old children that she's trying to hold a sexual orientation class with. A parent shared their concern and their um, objection to it and pulled their kid out. And instead of this teacher being concerned of what she did wrong, she goes to a district employee and asks for ways of how she can continue to teach sexual orientation to her third grade class. You guys want us to believe that this isn't a propaganda, that no agenda is being held? This wasn't just any sexuality class. This was specifically designed three days a week. She taught LGBTQ curriculum in her class. It raises the question, how many of those students are excelling in that classroom? Is everybody in that class getting A's in math, English, grammar, social studies? That we can dedicate three days a week to teach eight-year-olds about sexual orientation? I don't care what kind of sex is being discussed. The word sexuality, nudity, does not belong in the ears in a classroom of uh, eight-year-old kids. And when a parent showed their concern, what does this teacher do? Completely disregards and goes behind the parent's back trying to find ways of how to continue these lesson plans. The level of disrespect that has been shown to Christian conservative parents is becoming very obvious. It's like all of a sudden, just because we don't fit the agenda, we don't fit in within the parameters of the agenda that's being pushed, we're being disregarded and pushed to the side. We're not talking about having people excluded. We're talking about the level of uncomfortability that some parents are experiencing. And that's important. Because if you guys want to talk about including all, listening to all, every student matters, our kids matter too. And we don't want those subjects being taught to children who are just eight years old. And the topics get worse and worse and the subjects get uh, more detailed. And I'm sorry, are we doing Bible studies in classrooms? No, we're not, right? So why is this certain agenda being pushed into the classrooms? But if we don't take a stand and we don't share our voice, they're just going to sweep this under the rug. Why should a parent overhear her eight-year-old kid being taught about sex? Mrs. Tiber says, good morning, Sally and Craig. As you know, I teach third grade. Today, I talked to my class about LGBTQ Pride Month and played two short videos from YouTube that were geared toward kids. A parent who heard the lesson and discussion made her daughter leave the Zoom and texted me asking when I was done discussing sexual orientation so that she can let her kids back onto Zoom. I was planning on doing more lessons tomorrow and Wednesday, but now I'm afraid to. After sending the email, Mrs. Tiber received a response from Mr. Craig Lewis, part of district staff, that said, Do not be concerned or afraid. Your principal should support you, as I know that our district, include, including Vivian, does. End quote. This district staffer goes even further and gives more media recommendations to the teacher, but says to steer clear of content that says sexual or coming out, since it may raise red flags. In other words, coaching this teacher on proven methods to push her agenda, but to stay under the radar. 
Immediately after the release of this email chain, the parents at Jefferson Elementary who have, have or have had Ms. Tiber as their child's teacher reached out to the principal and demanded answers. Why is gender and sexuality issues being taught to eight-year-olds to begin with? With the tremendous loss of learning our children experienced the past two years, coupled with the already dismal reading and math performance scores of public schools, why are teachers taking away precious learning time to push their own political and social agendas? In what realm should eight-year-olds be discussing topics around transgenderism, lesbian, gay, queer, and coming out? All words which were repeated many times in these videos. As a parent, I demand an investigation into this matter, this teacher, and the district as a whole. The lid has been flipped, and the level of systemic indoctrination is abhorrent. You just heard two moms whose kids in classrooms are being taught all kind of sex stuff. Wow. That conversation stands alone. The big story. Chuck Chuck Todd of MSNBC. Face the nation. It's toast, folks. It's toast. It is no longer going to be on the cable network. It's being moved to a streaming network. And Chucky Boy, Mr. Controversy, Mr. I'll say anything and try to upset anybody just to get a talking point and a good story, anything to do with far lefties, he's always been pictured to be a rising star always in the NBC affiliated. He's gone. That's it for today. Have a great Monday afternoon. See you tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Central at TNN Live. Well, God,